This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we discover that the famous story of Job is so much more than we ever realized. We discover, we help you discover, Marty helps me discover, probably. I mean, I don't really know what there could be to it beyond Job's suffering. <laughs> it's a very straightforward story, there's right? There's a lot of suffering. Yeah. There's a lot of suffering. Yeah. It's a long book. Super famous story. It's pretty straightforward, right? We've all heard it before. This guy loses everything. Satan and God have this weird bet. Uh, he has, well, he loses all of his family except for his wife, which the way she treats him, probably, well, I don't want to make that too dark and morbid, but my goodness, <laughs> treats him horribly. She's like, come on, curse God and die. So I feel like the typical the typical look at the book of Job includes that very first opening portion. Yes. And then you skip straight to the end where God does yeah. his thing. <laughs> That's right. And then that's pretty much it. Yeah. And and yeah, and you can kind of see why. I mean, right after he loses everything, his friends come and they like kind of do the right thing at first. And then the whole book just becomes like an entire drama on doing the wrong thing, like how to be a bad friend. And you, you just have to like labor through this and there's content there, but you're like, oh, okay, my goodness. And you, you understand the themes and... It almost feels like it's getting worn out, and then, and then all of a sudden at the end, there's kind of like this hook, and this young guy named Elihu shows up, and then, and then God finally shows up, but he doesn't really do what you want. Like, we're familiar with the story. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's a book about suffering. But when you think about it, it's like, well, that book about suffering is kind of weird. It's a weird book. It doesn't answer all my questions about suffering. The characters are doing weird things. It's just, it's just a weird thing. So let's make some observations about Job right off the bat. First, Job is a drama. Might not be a shocker to everybody, but it's a play. It's like uh, when I was in school, uh, at different points in English class, you would have you'd have to enact a play, and everybody would get their parts. And we know we know what we're looking at when we have a play in front of us with parts assigned. Job is a drama. It's not to say that the drama is not based on an absolutely true tale. I don't know. Maybe there was a man named Job at some point. In fact, Midrash says that Job was a real guy. In fact, fun little tidbit, Brent, we're not going to get into this today. Don't let me get into this. But the Midrash says, who do you think married Job? Somebody in the Bible. I have no idea. Dina. Do you remember Dina from Genesis? Oh. Yeah. From marriage, uh, was going to marry Shechem. Uh Uh-huh. And they all got murdered after the rape of Dina. Well, Dina... And the Midrash goes on to marry Job, so that ends up being Job's wife, which in a Jewish tradition gives you a little perspective on why she has such a ayin ra'ah in the Hebrew, if you will, such an evil eye, such a glass half empty view on the world because of her own story. And all of a sudden it makes a little sense. Um, Doesn't mean it was true, just means that's what the Midrash teaches. By the way, as a second aside, the Midrash also teaches that Job was one of the magicians in Egypt. But alas, I digress. Yeah, we're not getting into that. <laughs> oh, man. The Midrash says there are three magicians in, uh, magicians in Egypt that talk. Remember the magicians in the Pharaoh story? They're the ones that keep doing the... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We said we weren't going to talk about it, but it's just so much fun. And then there's three, the Midrash says. Okay, one, of them so... was, one of them was Jethro. Jethro. One of them was Job. Job. And one of them was Balaam. Balaam. Really? As in Balaam's donkey. Yes. All these three biblical characters. And you're like, what? That's crazy. As you always do when you hear Midrash. And Jethro as in? Jethro's in the the father of law of Moses. Priest of Midian. Father-in-law of Moses. Yeah. Which is pretty ironic. Yeah. 
considering yeah. Moses was out there spending time with him for 40 sure. years. Yep. And then he comes back in and he's trying to do his little tricks. Yeah. And then father-in-law comes parading in. Yes. Boom. Yep. Snake. That's right. What else you got? Yep. Now the Midrash actually wouldn't let that happen because it says that Jethro left before Moses ever got there. Okay. All right. Which is why he's out in the desert when Moses ends up running away earlier in the story. Whole backstory there. But alas, we said we weren't going to get into it. It's a whole other story for another time. I remember dropping that on one of our Bema discussion groups earlier this year and people being like, but that would mean that Job is a pagan. I was like, yeah. Like, where does it say that Job is Jewish? Nowhere. And boy, that really threw some people for a loop. I wasn't expecting that loop. Like, I didn't realize how like heavily that would hit people, but they did not like that idea. Job could not be a pagan. But in fact, in Jewish tradition, this poor guy is a pagan. Nevertheless, it's a drama. Drama. Um, so read Job like you would a play. Second observation about um, Job. It's, it's, an, it's interesting to note Job's friends are partaking in a Jewish practice that we're not, often not familiar with, but I think we've talked about it here in our podcast, maybe back in session one. The, the concept of sitting Shiva. To sit Shiva. S-H-I-V-A. To sit Shiva uh, is something that you do with somebody that's in grief. In Jewish culture, when a person is in a period of grieving and loss, the friends show up to sit Shiva with the griever. You are not allowed to speak unless spoken to. You are just there to be present for the suffering. Um, such an such a great passage. Like you you don't you don't say anything. You don't try to console them. You don't try to explain it. You just sit with them. Now, if they want to ask you a question, if they want to address you, you can talk to them. But that's not your job. It's not why you showed up. And um, just such an interesting thing. I think we've recommended the Numa before, but it's just another good time to recommend it. There's a Numa by Rob Bell called uh, Matthew. And uh, the Numas are short little 10 to 14 minute videos. And one of them is on, on uh, grief. And um, Rob lost a really close friend and acquaintance at one point, And he talks about that in his, in that, in that Numa. So third observation, uh, I have placed Job as an exilic prophet. Now people often really kick back against this on a couple of different levels. Um, uh, many conservative Bible teachers would teach that Job is one of the oldest stories of the Bible. That is a really prevalent idea. I see it in a lot of students that come into my class. Um, there are elements of the story that seem to resonate with a much older Hebrew prose, somewhere around the dates of Abraham. And I, I can imagine, I can imagine that Job, the story of Job, has its roots in, I mean, how long, Brent, do you think we've been wrestling with as a human race the problem of suffering? Probably for uh, pretty much the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like if you want to, depending on how we want to talk about the Bible, all the way back to the days of Cain and Abel, or maybe even Adam and Eve, like the whole time. We have been wrestling with the problem of suffering. So I can imagine that the roots of the story of Job really do go way, way, way back. Like, well, yeah. Especially if Job was a magician. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the roots of the story can go, can go way far back. However, there are many elements of the story that seem to be problematic. Um, some of the content of the book does not match the time period. It's like there are references to the Zodiac. When it talks about Pleiades and Orion, those are those are way too late to be that early. That's not how they saw the Zodiac. So what's going on there? Um, the language surrounding the beasts, uh, etc. Additionally, the, blat- the blatant reference to Satan would be almost a millennium ahead of its time. The reference to Satan as a personified character doesn't begin until the Hellenistic period. 
So such a reference to Satan wandering around heaven and talking to God in this character, character, mono e mono bet that they place. Um, uh, such a reference would be unheard of that early in history. Um, there's another prevalent theory, especially amongst Jewish thinkers, that the book of Job belongs to the books of wisdom. That's the other pushback I get. People say, well, jo- Job should be a wisdom book. And in fact, I absolutely agree And yet, I've placed it here as an exilic prophet. I chose not to go through Job when we went through the wisdom literature on purpose. I do think it's wisdom literature. And in fact, uh, you're going to see me take um, uh, a—my personal opinion is that all three of these options are true, likely, in my opinion. Uh, I imagine the story of Job— would very likely be a very ancient tale. Humans have been wrestling with questions about suffering since the dawn of time. I can also see the character. Uh, remember how we we like to remake movies, Brent? In fact, it sure. feels like I get super frustrated these last few years because it's the only thing we want to remake. Like how many different times can you remake Spider-Man? Not that we've had a recent Spider-Man, but you get the idea. You can tell I'm not a fan of comic book movies. but Well, I think they got the Spider-Man one right now, though. All right. So, All right. we're good. All right. Well, just the, just the, we will remake a movie to death. How many Robin Hoods do we? I guarantee you, anytime culture takes a turn to where we feel like the rich are taking from the poor, we will remake Robin Hood. Because um, we'll do it every single time. Because it's just that. I think Job is one of those stories that probably got remade and rewritten and reshaped and retold. And so I do see, I don't know if Solomon himself, but I imagine a character like Solomon taking this ancient, ancient tale and then reworking it as this brilliant wisdom literature. And we're going to see by the time we're done today, I think there's a real treasure. I mean, a real treasure buried in the book here. If if we thought Daniel was a treasure trove with a double chiasm last uh, um, last podcast, then Job is going to, Job is like on Daniel on steroids. It's unbelievable. Okay. Um, so, so I think it could have started as a tale and then I can see somebody like Solomon re, re, rewriting it as wisdom literature. And then, and then I can also see somebody coming along later, centuries after Solomon. Now we sit in Babylonian exile and what story do we go to? Brent, what's our go-to story? We go to Job. We go to suffering in Babylon. Exactly. Exactly. And as we go to try to understand and unpack suffering, I can see them adding a little intro adding a little outro about Satan, using a little common-to-their-day language, Hellenistic period language. And they kind of add a little intro, and they add a little, and they just kind of rewrite it, and they reshape it, just like we do in our culture. doesn't really matter to me. Some people, that makes them uncomfortable. I believe it's inspired, authoritative Bible. So whether it got to me late or it got to me early, to me it doesn't matter, because at some point it got to me in the form of what I have in my scriptures, that inspired, authoritative drama. So uh, I'm good either way, but that's my personal hunch. I don't get to have one because I'm not a PhD. I don't have the degrees to say I have a hunch, but I have a hunch just as a human being. I've been listening to this podcast recently called Myths and Legends, where they talk about the origins of all these different stories. Yeah. And boy, you look at something like the origin of Aladdin or the origin of Beauty and the Beast, and you compare it to what you know of the story from the Disney movies, it's like, ooh, that's... That's weird. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. you have to update the story to make... Because I'm sure of course, hundreds yeah. of years ago when those stories originated, they made sense to the audience at the time. Sure. But they sure don't now. Right. So if you don't up this, update the story, 
for your current audience, they're not going to get what you need them to get out of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we understand this in a big way. We just have to quit putting the Bible in this weird fantasy category and put it in, in, a, in a category that we already are very familiar with. Okay. Uh, for, last observation, and this is the big one. Job is, guess what, Brent? Da, 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 da. Take a guess. A chiasm. It's a chiasm. And it's not just a chiasm. It is a chiasm of chiasms. It is a chiasms of chiasms, chiasms. It's, it is unbelievable. So we actually are going to link in the show notes a link that hopefully will work for some time. Sometimes the links change from this site and they get broken a lot. But we're going to throw the link up. There is, as far as I understand it, you can do your own research on this guy. But there is a Japanese Bible scholar. That is not something you typically hear a lot about. But there is a Japanese Bible scholar who used a computer-based algorithm to go through the scriptures and identify parallelisms, inverted parallelisms, chiasms, whatever. And so you'll see every book of the Bible there after it's been submitted to this algorithm. And it is amazing. I don't always agree with how it's mapped itself out and... I'm not sure how the entire system works and how he goes about putting all this stuff together. Sometimes I think stuff is off. But the book of Job, I remember spending an entire work day a few years ago when I found this site. My mind was blown at what was going on. What I believe blatantly easy to see going on in the book of Job, where not only is Job a chiasm, but remember Daniel, we said, was a what kind of chiasm? A double chiasm. A double chiasm, right? A chiasm A and chiasm B. But not only that, like take chiasm A and make chiasm A a double chiasm, but then make the subchiasms double chiasms. Like there are little sections which are often referred to. I didn't. I've been saying this wrong for all my former students. I used to say pericope. Apparently, that is not the proper pronunciation. Apparently, it is pericope or something like that. But Google pericope. P e r i c o p e. It means uh means a um uh um oh what is the what is the a little section of of text an and usually an extract. There you go. Do you have the does that give you a pronunciation right there? Uh it's in those weird like upside down letters and the lines and the marks and stuff. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah. Can you play it out loud? No, I don't have audio. Okay. Dang. All right. Um but yeah, there's a look that up. Half Siri uh, ooh. It's a, it's like a Latin or Greek word. It doesn't surprise me that it's pronounced much different yeah, yeah. than than we see it written. Let's do a little fun little experiment here on the Bayma podcast. I got Siri right here. Let's let's see what Siri let's see what Siri has for me. Can we do this? Sure. Sure we can. It's gonna it's gonna drive Brent crazy, but we're gonna do it anyway. We're gonna we're gonna go rogue here. The definition for pericopy. Okay. I found this. Hold on. Got to spell it right. There, I got you covered. You got it? All right. Let's do this thing. Pericope. Pericope. <laughs> so not pericope, apparently, but crip- pericope. All right. So every little pericope in the book of Job has some form of parallelism. Now, my favorite breakdown of that is to explore the 1-1. If you get to that website and you pull it open and you look at the book of Job, Go to the 1-1 breakdown and explore that. And if you really got more time and your brain isn't about ready to explode, jump on the 3-1, 3-2, 3-3. Those are my favorite breakdowns. But there are some other breakdowns too. And just to see what's going on there, 
if that was done with any kind of human intent and not just mystical, supernatural, God inspiration type stuff, that is absolutely mind-blowing, the breakdown of the book of Job. So so when I say Job is a chiasm, please don't hear me say like, oh yeah, Job is a chiasm. Like Job is a chiasm, like the mother load of chiasms. It's been one of my favorite books to look at from a chaotic perspective. So um, the center of the book, let's see here. I've got some notes here. Let's just make sure I don't, you know, miss anything. Uh, long story short, the center of the book of Job ends up being chapter 28. I don't want to post the entire chapter here, but I bet we can let Brent Billings read it. Do you have chapter 28? I sure do. All right. Fantastic. Let's hear chapter 28. This will be the center of the entire book of Job. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Okay, so the uh, chapter 28 opens with the author saying, poetically, and I believe this is the voice of Job, if I remember correctly. Um, Job is saying, uh, listen, humans have been able to do incredible things. Like we mine the hills for minerals and resources. Like just to consider in an ancient world, the work of mining. Wow. Like human beings have done some incredible things when it comes to mining the hills for resources. Okay, keep going. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. All right, so they've done pretty great things, pretty amazing things. They've been all over looking for unbelievable resources. Go ahead and keep going. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found at the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it, It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, When he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Man, that is a beautiful piece of poetry right there. That that is a phenomenal chunk of literature. I have become Job crazy after. What what irritates me is how familiar I was with the book of Job. I mean, we had to, you were even talking about, I went to Bible college, but you, you went to, where did you go to school, Brent? North Idaho College. Yeah, and you had to do a class where your assignment was in the Book of Job, right? I mean, I had to do multiple assignments in the Book of Job. Like, I am, I would, I would have, I would have said I was very familiar personally, academically, whatever. I was very familiar with the Book of Job. How many times have I read over 
Job 28 and never appreciated the depth and the poetry of what's being said there until I realized it was the center of a chiasm. I mean, it's this beautiful thing where humans have done unbelievable things, but wisdom, they've never been able to mine, to mine wisdom out of the hills, the hills. Like they've, in all of their searching for gold and lapis lazuli, they've never encountered wisdom in all of their mine shafts. Like only God knows where wisdom comes from. Now think about the larger context of the book of Job and think about that. Like this whole book is a question about what, Brent? About suffering. Human suffering, right? And this whole drama is about why, why does suffering, why suffering? And the center of the chiasm, kind of like Lamentations. Remember talking about Lamentations, the alphabetic chiastic acrostic, where we had a whole lament and in the center... A little bit of hope. A little bit of hope. And here we have a whole book on suffering and in the center, this chapter on, but here's the thing, in all the midst of our suffering, what we really lack is true wisdom. What we really lack is perspective, is the word that we're going to use for Job. You see, Job is all about perspective. Let me explain. Let me read some notes here. Uh, The whole point of chapter 28 is that true wisdom belongs to God. Only he knows where to find it. And only he can unearth the amazing treasures of wisdom that come from his divine perspective. This is an incredible treasure to be buried in the center of a play about a guy who loses everything. Which leads me to my final thought. Job does not end with an explanation. Like this whole play and this whole drama that goes on and on and on. For almost 40 chapters, 40, more than 40 chapters, has no explanation at the end of it. You get to the end, there's no, there's no resolution. I mean, there's the happy ending, but there's no resolution. Um, after God shows up to throttle Job, you want God to end the discourse with an explanation. Like God interrupts all these horrible friends, and you want God to tell Job all the backstory. Like he wants, you want, like, doesn't Job at least deserve an explanation from God about why all this, after all of this, after enduring all of this, uh, Job doesn't get an explanation from God. Because that's how life is. That's how suffering goes. And we don't always get the answers. But as you are the reader, of course, you are let into the backstory. All that stuff that Job doesn't know. Like Job doesn't know about this like heavenly bet. Like you remember where the whole story, the whole story started, Brent, because God was willing to lay a wager on Job. God was so impressed by Job that he was willing to, it's just a totally like, asinine setup to the story, right? Like God and Satan making a wager. This is so weird when you step back. Like sometimes we've gotten so used to reading the Bible, we forget how ridiculous some of this stuff is. Like God is setting up a wager with Satan because he's like, oh man, have you seen Job? I saw you wandering around heaven, Satan. Let me call you over here. Have you seen Job? Isn't he the, like, he's just fantastic. Satan's like, ah, no, he's fantastic because you give him everything. And this heavenly wager ends up like, if Job would have known any of the backstory, I wonder if any of our, like, I kind of hope not, but I wonder if any of our stories of suffering are the results of any heavenly wagers because God's like, I know this person can endure this. I know where their heart's at. I know, which is ridiculous. I'm not suggesting that that's actually a theological truth, but it was the backstory to the book of Job. Um, uh So you get to know the backstory. Can you imagine how things would have changed if Job knew that his suffering was coming as a result of a heavenly wager that rested on God's beaming confidence in him? Uh, There's another Numa, by the way, I would recommend. Uh, One by, uh, well, all the Numas are by Rob, but this one's called Whirlwind. 
and it's it's about the book of Job specifically. Um, but but Job is for me about perspective. The author of Job is inviting us to consider the infinite and eternal possibilities that could lie behind our suffering. And I would say he's even the author here. He or she is even suggesting uh, suggesting the the foolish, the ridiculous. Like how many possibilities could be going on in the heavenlies? To know that God sees things that we could never begin to see and understand. God can mine wisdom from the hills of suffering as easily as man mines minerals from the mountains. Even in the midst of suffering, we are invited to trust the story. I wanted to read these words from 28 one more time as a closer. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands and knows the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, when he looked at wisdom and appraised it, he confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and to shun evil is understanding. And that is one of my favorite books, Book of Job. It's pretty great. Yeah. It is a lot more than we ever realized. Oh my goodness. And it just keeps going. I mean, we've just really scratched the the surface here set aside some serious time when you dig into the website on chiasms yeah it's it's good just keeps going you keep getting deeper and deeper and crazier and crazier it's not uh the prettiest website (laughs) no no once you get used to navigating it uh it's a little better but you'll notice how each chiasm is really building towards the center like the chiasms themselves are having conversations with each other um there's a there's a question and an answer and a question and an answer it's really really interesting it's pretty wild yeah. All right. Well, if you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday and Pullman on Wednesday. You can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>